You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking education venture funding with Chantel Garvey. Chantel is a partner and co-founder of Reach Capital, an impact-focused edtech venture fund that was spun out of nonprofit New Schools Venture Fund in 2015. They have deployed about $95 million in 61 investments, including some well-known startups you might recognize, Class Dojo, Elevation, Nearpod, and Newzella, all while maintaining a focus on education and workplace innovations. Let's listen in as Chantel and Tom chat return, growth, and impact. Chantel Garvey, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Hey, it's great to have you, uh, great to have you on. How did you get to MIT? Well, I can point to two people who really influenced my trajectory to MIT and also in majoring in chemical engineering. That would be my mother and my high school chemistry teacher. So my mom, she's a professor, and she always emphasized of, the importance. Of what? What she's a professor she's an, She's an accounting professor at Elon University. Okay. And she always emphasized the importance of education in our household. So summer break was not a break for me. It was summer school for me. It was always critical that we were at least one year ahead. So I was studying around the clock. And through my studies, I really took an interest in math and science specifically. So when I got to high school, uh, my AP chemistry teacher also saw and noticed that I had this aptitude for chemistry. So during the year, she really encouraged me to actually pursue chemical engineering uh, in college. She thought that I would really actually like more the applied version of chemistry. And then another thing that happened in her class was that I really started to see the relevance of chemistry and science in our everyday lives. We had an assignment where we had to go home, look up the ingredients on the back, of different household products and write out the chemical formulas. And I was like, wow, all this chemistry I'm learning in school is actually relevant to everything I'm doing every day and relevant to everybody's lives. And that also so it took me on a trajectory to MIT, took me on that trajectory to chemical engineering, and also eventually to working at Procter & Gamble, where I ended up making uh, laundry products um, that households use every day. So. No kidding. That's uh, I came. <laughs> I, I am also an engineer. I came very close to working at PNG. Uh, mm. So that's very interesting. Um, and and then why Stanford and this uh, the the dual education uh, MBA? Yeah. So I've been working at Procter and Gamble for about five years, um, and I'd always had a passion for education. So did a lot of education programs on the side. I did a lot of tutoring and mentoring. And really started to see that's where my passion was and wanted to make a career change into the field. I liked the intersection of education and technology. So thought about how could I, um, again, enter this kind of ed tech field. I looked at different programs. Uh, Stanford had a program, a dual degree in both business and education. So I thought, hey, can't beat that. Two degrees, two years. A great opportunity for me to try to make this transition into this new field. I had a great experience. It was great to actually start to see the overlap and the intersection of business and education. So I took courses like the economics of a higher education or uh, entrepreneurial approaches to education reform. So really started seeing how I could apply the skill sets I was learning in business school to actually improving education outcomes. 
Did, did you know at the time how many uh, extraordinary people have gone through that program? Uh, somewhat, yes. They have, they have a great alumni base. I wow. talked to a lot of those alumni as I was considering different programs. And so that was you know, part of the decision to go. I, you know, I think, uh, did you know that Kim Smith uh, went through that program? Yes, thought, actually, thought. I, I, I knew that she had actually written the business plan for New Schools Venture Fund while she was right. at the Stanford program, yeah. And uh, Jim Shelton was a, another mm-hmm. uh, early alumni, so it's really produced some important leaders in this uh, sector, including yourself, so it's a terrific program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, did did you learn about New Schools Venture Fund uh, while you were at Stanford? I did. Um, and the way that I learned about it was actually through one of my courses. So I took a course at the design school called Education Entrepreneurship. At the time, it was being co-taught by who is now my co-founder and partner, Jennifer Carolyn. And she at the time was working at New Schools Venture Fund on their early stage uh, at TechSeed portfolio. So, in, you know, during the class, she would bring in different EdTech entrepreneurs, they would talk about their work. So I reached out to her and said, you know, after school, I would love to you know, be working in an EdTech company. Can you connect me to these different entrepreneurs? And she said, why don't you actually come work for new schools uh, instead on the founding side or the funder, funder side? And at the time, I said, absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, going to Stanford, my plan was always to be on the operating side, mm-hmm. either start my own tech company right. or go join an tech company. And I just had this, this thought that, uh, you know, funders weren't as close to the impact and I wouldn't, you know, be able to uh, do the work that I really wanted to do in the field. That being said, got a lot of advice that it was a great opportunity, and even if I went there for a couple of years, I would still have a great experience that I could take you know, with me to other, other um, places in my career. So I decided to go to new school, uh, and again, the plan was, okay, two years, I'll have a macro level view of the sector, and then go back to the operating side, and you fast forward eight years later, I'm still here, um, still on the funding side, um, so stayed at new schools, and then um, now at REACH. And Chantel, was, uh, were you there for two or three years before you and Jennifer decided to spin, reach out as a, as a standalone? Correct. So I was there three years before we spun out. What kind of advantages were you looking for? What, what, would, what, what did you see uh, the ability to do as a standalone fund? Was it just access to capital? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. Um, obviously, access to capital and being able to to build a larger fund. So we had, you know, a smaller, you know, ten million dollar ish fund under the New Schools umbrella that allowed us to do these small early stage checks uh, into these companies, but not really follow them. So not really right. uh, do follow on rounds and really follow them as they uh, continue through the trajectory. So we wanted to be able to do that, and to do that, you need know obviously larger fund sizes so it allowed us one to access you know greater funds to fall in these companies and three just structurally it was a little bit challenging you know doing for-profit investing under a non-profit umbrella so it just really made sense to be a standalone venture entity i i want to acknowledge in case kim smith is listening to this that um, <laughs> as far back as 2002 when i was at the gates foundation she wanted to launch an, uh, an ed tech fund. And I 
never supported it. Um, I, I really appreciate her instincts and, and leadership. I, I think it was an early part of the, the new school's plan. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that, um, that you landed there and that you and Jen um, launched it first at new schools and then spun it out to, mm -hmm. to form um, Reach Capital. Uh, today, um, you guys are on investing your second fund, is that right? Yep, investing out of our second fund. And, and about how much have you deployed today? Um, about $95 million if you include you know, the work we did at New Schools, our Reach 1 okay. fund, and our Reach 2 fund. Yeah. That's really terrific. Um, Reach is one of the um, three or four funds that I recommend to impact-focused investors. So mm -hmm. I, I send people your direction uh, probably Thank you. <laughs> once a month um, because I, I really, really appreciate your leadership and your, uh, and your focus. It, well, one interesting thing, um, Chantel, in, in my research, I, I guess I had thought of you guys as a K-12 fund, but you, you're now about 45% um, post-secondary in terms of higher ed and lifelong learning, right? Correct. So and, we, and you have so some early learning as well. Exactly, exactly. So that was an evolution from our new school days. So new schools, while we were there, we were 100% K-12. When we got to Reach 1, we started doing more activity in higher ed. And now Reach 2, we do the entire spectrum. So we're doing you know, early learning, which includes parent education, all the way up through post-secondary, college alternative, um, workforce training, corporate training, uh, and just really seeing those opportunities across the entire education spectrum. Uh, Chantel, I mentioned your impact focus, but on your website it says, we invest in education because we believe it's our most valuable resource. It has the power to influence our course, contribute to our dreams, and strengthen our communities. Can you really um, run a viable venture fund and, and really look for both impact and return? Um, do, do you really try to maximize both of those things? How, how do you think about that? We do. We, we try to maximize both. And actually, we believe that the most impactful companies will have the, the highest financial returns when those two things um, blend together in the right ways. And so we start that by looking at mission-driven founders and so people who really are in it to have an impact and really improve what we would consider access and opportunity. Then we look for strong products and products that, one, are, are backed by research, have you know, strong pedagogy behind them, and you know, really even have evidence of efficacy. So when you have strong products, you're going to definitely attract strong and loyal customer base who, um, you know, if you're working in a large market, then, you know, obviously that will continue to grow. So we look forward to kind of these mission-driven founders who are, bit, who are building strong products who um, are, again, focused on impact and then operating in large markets where there's enough potential customers to build a large viable business. And so with our impact lens, we're also looking at scale. And so for us, scale is important to have um, the largest impact. And again, as you scale, that leads to those stronger financial outcomes. I, I thought uh, on the subject of scale, I thought you, there's a really interesting wordplay on your, on your website where you talk about reach. Reach as in reach beyond the classroom, reach as many people as possible, and then reach across the divides. 
nice way of uh, of explaining what you do. Yeah. Great, great name. <laughs> Helps us learn to those things. Um, Chantel, like, um, like the tech sector, um, ed tech has been, um, has been pretty white. Uh, most founders in the last 10 years, um, are, are white guys. Um, it's, uh, in my experience, it's, uh, a lot of guys whose sister was a teacher and they heard mm. complaining at Thanksgiving. So they coded an app and became a founder. Um, so I appreciate that you guys are looking for more research-backed um, products, but I know you're also looking um, to bring more uh, diverse founders uh, into ed tech. I, I guess what what are you doing there? What are you seeing that's productive in the in the sector? Yeah, and and, and just to start, the reason why we think this is important, you know, obviously, you know, di- diverse teams, you know. Um, we have shown to, to prove greater outcomes, but also being in a tech and being in a sector, we really want the founders to reflect the broader community and the broader demographics that they're trying to serve. Uh, and we believe that they'll be able to better kind of serve this market um, with the kind of that, that unique and, and diverse background. So, you know, I think it starts first with, with your own team, right? And so we've been really intentional about building a diverse team from the get-go. So, um, there's myself, African-American female, we have a Latino male, we have an Asian female and a white female. That's our founding um, kind of general partnership. And so already, you know, with that diverse team, we're bringing diverse perspectives to our investment process. And we're also bringing unique networks that we can source um, different type of entrepreneurs with uh, diverse backgrounds. So I think it really starts with, with the team and then even on um, – you know, once you start to look at investments, you also start to think about what kind of biases we may have in our investment process. And this is a reflection that we've been doing um, continually over the past couple of years and, and just understanding, do we have certain biases through pattern recognition where we are not um, surfacing or investing in more entrepreneurs of color or with more unique backgrounds and diverse backgrounds. So that's, that's the other piece that we've been very intentional about. Um, in terms of being able to kind of create and, and have this diverse portfolio. Uh, Chantel, most of our listeners are really not going to be familiar with the venture process. Could you walk us through the process? Um, how do you, how do you hear about investments? Like where do they, where do they come from? Mm-hmm. What's that first contact look like? Um, and, and maybe before COVID, uh, what did that first pitch look like? How does it, how long does the process usually take to kind of walk us through a typical investment? Sure. So from a sourcing perspective, there's two buckets. Uh, there's kind of what we call inbound and outbound. So inbound sourcing is where people are coming into us and they can come from a variety of different ways. Most often that is referrals, so referrals from other investors or referrals from people like yourself who know our work and right. have come across companies and send them our way. So co-investors, people in our network sending us deals, that is one way. We are very also open to um, just people who may not have connections to us being able to reach us and us evaluate them. And so we actually have an open um, application form right on our website. So that's another form uh, that we use to intake entrepreneurs. That's great. I uh, appreciate and then, and that. That's unusual. That 
there's that a lot of people unusual. that are sort of cloak and dagger and you can't figure out how to get in. So yeah. And, and, nope. and what we find cool. is that typically that typically impacts again, oftentimes the entrepreneurs of color who don't necessarily have connections into this world. And so right. really making sure that we are opening up the funnel to as many potential entrepreneurs as possible. So there's that inbound, um, and again, part of it too is just us being in the field for a while and, and people kind of know our brand and, and what we invest in. The other, op- the other way is outbound. And so we also create thesis areas, areas that we're particularly interested in that we will proactively go and look for companies. And that can be through conferences, through entrepreneurs will read that thought leadership piece. And then again, that's another way that they will come inbound um, to us. So that's kind of the forcing perspective. And then, um, how long does it take? So you, you oh, yeah. get a you get a pitch, and mm-hmm. seems yep. seems interesting. Then, then uh, what happens? So first, not everyone gets a pitch, so that's the first meeting. So you know, we will evaluate. You can look at a pitch set, a blurb, and the kind of the first filter. And that first filter is usually is it a fit for us? Is it the right stage? Is it the right sectors? Uh, is there enough evidence there? Um, you know, uh, of, of what they're building and, and the potential and, impact. And I forgot so to ask you first. this on stages. Can, can you do pre-revenue? Oh, yeah. Can you go really early? Okay. We do go early. We can go pre-revenue. Um, so we do seed stage uh, and a couple of opportunistic series A and B stages. Okay. So if you do make it to the, to the pitch, um, so that's usually a first 30-minute call. Right. Um, we're, again, we're digging into your team. We're trying to understand the market. We're trying to understand what brought you to this work. Then we'll, if you get past that, you go to what we call our uh, weekly investment meeting and we'll kind of, again, get more input from a broader, from a broader team. And then that could either go towards diligence or additional digging. And depending on how comfortable we, have, we are with the market, um, that can be maybe four to six weeks of doing reference checking, again, meeting with the team, getting comfortable with the team and, and, and the founders. Uh, and potentially also talking to customers. Right. So that could be a four to six week process. And unfortunately, sometimes we can't dictate the process. So sometimes, you know, deals are, are going faster. So, yeah. you know, we may have to turn around things in a week or two. Right. Do you like to lead deals or follow? We are leaders and that, that's been an evolution. So again, when we were at new schools, we were writing smaller checks. And so we were typically not the lead and actually trying to hustle and find the syndicate. Uh, now we like to, to lead our deal. So we should uh, explain what that means. So you, you're, you're the one that would be negotiating the term sheet with the startup, right? Correct. So negotiating the, the term sheet and also taking the, t- typically the majority of the round when you're leading. Okay. So once you've made the investment, then what's your relationship look like? How do you, how do you support your companies and, and do you always serve mm-hmm. on boards? What, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, this varies from fund to fund. I would say we, because we're early, we're very a very hands-on fund. And I'd say our support can be bucketed into both individual support and then what I'd say fund-level portfolio-wide support. So on the individual side, we do um, take board seats. And so there's kind of the board, the board role. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we're always there to work with our founders on strategy, on um, kind of hiring, building their team. We do a lot of um, thought partnership with them. And then sometimes just, you know, obviously sometimes a shoulder to cry on as they're going through crisis, right? And they can really kind of lean on us um, to, help, to help work through some of the challenges with their company. And then from a portfolio perspective, 
uh, what's nice is again, we have, you know, over these over 60 investments in the space. Uh, and so we, you know, we really believe that a lot of the learning can be between each other. We do a lot of convening. So we do a once a year founders day and we bring the whole portfolio together while they're come together and learn best practices from each other. And we'll also bring in um, different experts. Right now during COVID, we're running an, an Ask Me Anything series with different thought leaders who are just providing insight on, you know, what's happening with education right now during this time. Uh, so that's something that's happening again every week where we convene the founders uh, over Zoom. And then we do a lot of benchmarking. So again, we have a lot of data on companies' trajectories and kind of what, where they should be at certain stages. And so our company can really benchmark themselves with that data to understand how they're uh, performing against kind of similar companies. So uh, I'm curious, how, how many companies in your portfolio, how, how many companies out of the 60 are you actively involved in? A dozen? Yeah. I'd say Something about like a dozen. that? Yeah. yeah. That's a lot. About That's a lot to keep up with, right? <laughs> and, is, you're, and you're spending some of your time screening new deals, so. Exactly. What's so this that? job is, yeah, you're screening, you're screening new deals, you're, right. you're working on existing deals, and I also do um, some pieces of fund management. So um, you have to balance kind of all those three things. So you're, doing a, you're hardest, doing a lot of Zoom calls right now. I am. And the hardest part of this job is prioritizing yeah. and knowing where to spend your time. You know, for us, obviously, the current portfolio is, is always top priority right. um, in supporting our current entrepreneurs. And then, um, again, but at the same time, we're still responsible for sourcing new deals, for making sure our fund is, you know, sustainable, things of that nature. All right, Chantel, I, I want to uh, do kind of a lightning round. I want to run through your portfolio and uh, give you and me a chance to give a shout out for uh, companies in your portfolio. Think uh, folks that uh, have done surprisingly well or are doing uh, surprisingly cool stuff in the in the midst of this. I'm I'm looking at your website, and so I have the advantage of seeing an alpha list. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start with Able, which is a, a very cool San Francisco um, scheduling software company. Most people don't realize what a nightmare a high school master schedule is, and Able is building solutions for that. Cool company, right? Correct. And what most people don't realize, too, is that that scheduling right now is typically done by hand. And so right. it's usually a teacher that's doing sticky notes to do a schedule, and now you bring in software to do the optimization. Right. But what's interesting now in a time of COVID, can you just imagine now the complexity of what schedules are going to look like? You're yes. talking about different days, different cohorts. And again, having a tool and software to be able to uh, deal with that complexity, huge right. value add right now. New, new CEO, Howard Bell, is that right? Correct. New CEO, great, Howard Bell. Yeah. Great guy. Um, you have a couple old names, um, you know, from the very beginning of EdTech, um, Better Lesson and Class Dojo, th those are guys that have been around almost 10 years. Yeah, um, still going strong, yeah. Better Lesson is, is doing great work in, um, in curriculum leadership. Anything you wanna add on them? Yeah, and, and something that they're currently doing now is, is more on the coaching side. So taking all of the great curriculum, right. content that they developed and helping that be a lever to do continuous feedback and um, PD for the teachers. I missed it, MidHub, but was MidHub one of your earlier higher ed investments? 
correct. That was one of our first higher ed investments out of Reach One. Um, so they're a chatbot that really answers every student's question that they may have as they're entering college. Right. So they really tried to address the summer melt problem. So summer right. melt is when students get accepted, doesn't show up on the first day. A lot of it is friction around, you know, my FAFSA, can I bring my dog to the dorm? They right. built a chatbot that will answer all of those questions and really show that it does decrease that summer melt. So they did a randomized control trial to, to show that. And if you think about the time in COVID, um, they've also you know been very instrumental in keeping communications happening between universities and, and their students. Right. Um, and so building a, a, a tool where you can keep that communication up as students are not on campus. Um, and all three of these, I think, really illustrate your impact focus. I mean, these are great companies right. going after the thorny, real problems, um, in, particularly in high schools and colleges. Uh, Dojo's been around for 10 years. That was really an early leader in in connecting parents, teachers, and kids um, yep. via text. They've moved into SEL and are doing really terrific work there. Desmos is a super cool math visualization tool. They have a great team. That's another one that's been around for 10 years and is chugging along. Yeah, and they, you know, they started in the kind of the graphing calculator space, so more yeah. of a, a tool. Um, and they now are working on um, math curriculum. That'll be really exciting and taking those learnings to create a very engaging math. That is uh, super exciting. Um, Elevation is a really great um, English language learner platform. Um, isn't that, yep. doesn't the founder, is it Josh that came out of new schools? A uh, founder is Jordan Moranis. Jordan. And yes, he, yes, and he came from new schools and founded um, yeah. Elevation. So yes. he, he's really an important part of the Boston um, EdTech hub. So we, we really appreciate yep. the work he's doing there. Um, Hone, that's a, a brand new investment for you guys. Did you lead that one? I did. And this is in a newer area for us, which is in the area of corporate training. So you can think of Hone as virtual leadership and manager training. And what's really interesting now is they also are providing training around how do you do this well remotely? How do you stay being a strong manager in a remote environment? Uh, so I think that's really important and also providing additional training around um, diversity and inclusion and, and being able to do that well within, within an organization. Um, New Zealand, I'm going to take credit for this one, Chantel. Okay. Um, <laughs> I talked to Matt Gross eight years ago, told him you guys were starting a fund. I think I sent him your direction. This is a terrific English language arts um, social studies app that gets kids to read um, um, using the news uh, as an app, yeah. right? Using the news and at their level. I think this right. is something that teachers were trying to do themselves, where you're trying to kind of differentiate for different reading levels within their classrooms. And now we can do this on the platform and it also removes that kind of stigmatization around, okay, you're, you know, you're a lower reading level, you get the, the you know, the dummy book or something. We're all right. reading really high interest news articles, but at my individual level. So that was great innovation. Uh, I love that. Um, People Grove, I just got an email from them a couple days ago. Um, remind me of what they're doing. They, they're just standing up a very cool new network. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, originally People Grow was really trying to connect 
uh, alumni with current students yeah. and really trying to think about social capital and this mentorship. So if alumni could mentor current students, would that, you know, um, kind of help uh, elevate their, their career trajectories? Uh, and what they've done is now that they have those strong connections, if you think about this time in COVID, a lot of students have, have lost uh, their internships, they've lost their full-time um, placements. And so what they've done is they've reached out to those alumni networks to also provide project-based uh, experiences for current students. And so that's what they just uh, recently launched and it's going quite well. Yeah, that's very, very cool. We appreciate the, it's one that Julia Freeland Fisher would appreciate in terms of the social connections and the real world learning exactly. experiences. Uh, that exactly. it's creating. Um, you guys have had a handful of exits, four or five of them, uh, that have been acquired. Schoolment, Schoolzilla, um, Write Lab was acquired a year ago. That was a writing lab that started there in the in the East Bay. Did that go to turn yeah. in? Who it actually went to Chegg. That Chegg. went to Chegg. Yes, who was looking to kind of balance out their their tools and um, yeah, that one went to went to Chegg and that was a writing product. Um, it got started out of um, University of Berkeley. Right. And um, thinking about how do you embed, you know, taking AI to really embed writing feedback right into the writing process. Right. I, uh, I remain very excited about uh, writing feedback systems and um, WriteLab had a, 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 terrific, a terrific app. Uh, Tinker is a great example of uh, another hands-on learning company in your portfolio. That's a great team that must be doing pretty well in, in pandemic. Yes. A lot of people looking for, you know, alternate supplemental education and they really focus on uncoding. So helping students get onboarded with coding from even a very early age. Wow. It's a, it's a very cool portfolio. Anybody else you want to give a shout out to somebody you'll get in trouble if you don't mention them. <laughs> yeah. So a couple, um, you know, some from the early stages, you know, you know, Nearpod was one of the first yeah. deals we did when I got to new school. Um, right. You know, and at the time, they were solving for this this iPad problem where all these iPads were going to classroom and teachers didn't know what to do. So, right. you know, I called in kind of the, the operating system for the one-to-one classroom. Yep. As you can imagine, doing very well right now as a solution really um, uh, supports distance learning. Uh, the other one, getting a lot of um, attention right now would be OutSchool. So OutSchool is Right. Um, you know, live online learning courses, you know, they started in the homeschool market, but as you can imagine right now, tons of parents are looking for kind of supplement education opportunities. And again, these are certified teachers bringing kind of strong interest-based um, courses that um, families are signing up for. Boy, that's, and I guess the last thing that's going to, that's mentioned. really pop. That's super hot yes. space right now. Super hot space right now. Yeah. And then the, the other one I'd mention, um, uh, Epic is another one that's popping right now. You can you can think of Epic as almost a Netflix for, for ebooks. Um, you know, access to forty thousand titles. Again, right. in the time of COVID, students, you know, parents looking actually looking for a safe space of um, great content of you know ebooks, videos, uh, how-to videos, um, also doing very well. And then one I most recently did is a company called Ripen. Uh, so this is a company actually based in Canada, and what they're doing is connecting universities and colleges with employers to do project-based experiences. And so again, you know, given COVID, they actually launched a virtual internship product. We've seen a lot yeah. of success with that, where career services 
um, officers were saying, you know, we, we, we need help helping our students get these experiences, getting placements. Again, students not uh, being able to um, do their traditional internship experience. And this is a way to get connected with a, a number of different opportunities. That's awesome. I've looked at that. Uh, love that idea. Um, earlier, you talked about sort of outbound, where you guys develop a thesis and where you're looking for yep. companies. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, maybe slightly more broadly than that, when, when you think about the, the invention opportunities that exist out there, what are the gaps, the chances for people to make a really big difference um, that, you're, that you're most interested in today? Yeah, there's a couple of different gaps. Um, so one gap that I've been looking at, and I think this is with the onset of a lot of the remote learning, is how do we make this um, remote learning also, you know, be uh, suitable for building authentic relationships? We know that education is so much more than the academics. So, you know, so how do we, in this kind of virtual environment, um, have build tools and inventions that really allow you to build that connection? And so... Mm -hmm looking for tools that do that because I do think, you know, this remote learning, some type of hybrid remote learning will be the future. Um, so really looking for tools that um, en enable that. Then the other area I've been doing some digging in is what I call middle skills. And so this is, middle skills are pathways where you don't necessarily need a four-year degree, but you need more than a high school degree. So some type of um, uh, credential usually uh, in the space. You see a huge need for um, more talent. There's a lot of talent shortages, uh, yet um, not a lot of training programs and, and tools to kind of support pathways into these middle skills. So That's very interesting. We had Ryan Craig on the podcast a month ago. Oh, yeah. Ryan just launched the Chief Partners really to, to bring uh, capital to that space. And an uh, interesting, Chantel, yesterday Infosys announced an interesting partnership to move into this space. They're taking a bunch of their internal curriculum and, and creating an open public uh, platform and they have four or five very interesting uh, partners. So I, I agree that this space is, um, mm -hmm. there's a big need, but there's, uh, there's a lot of interest and we're seeing a lot of corporate content move into this, uh, yeah. creating, creating these, uh, often tech pathways, pathways to technical jobs that may not require a degree. And in many cases, you're able to work and learn uh, simultaneously. So it does feel like a, a very ripe area. Yeah, and I think, I think this is, you know, if, if, if I think about, you know, um, what could accelerate some of this work in some of the space, I do think we need um, additional support from the public sector and potentially yeah. more public-private um, collaboration. So if you think about even just as middle skill space, one of the, like you said, one of the great ways to um, train for a lot of these uh, pathways would be through an apprenticeship program. Um, right. And we know, for example, that 70% of students in Switzerland actually do apprenticeships right. versus only about 5% here in the U.S. And that's largely due to, you know, lack of government policy port, support for internships. And so you could see a world where um, really, uh, you know, incentivizing more companies to do this type of programming could really accelerate right. the space. And I wonder if you want to say more on this subject. It, we're in a space where you, you don't, even if you have a really cool product that's invented, it won't necessarily be quickly adopted into the sector because our sector is so 
structured around historical practices and policies. And so it often takes a combination of, of a set of public incentives, whether those are philanthropic or public, mm -hmm. and new tools. And so do you guys think about trying to create spaces like that that can bring together public and philanthropic uh, investments as well as private investments? Yeah, I think that's important. And like you said, I think you need the public side oftentimes to enable some of the innovations that, that you really want to see. Um, so, you know, one example would be this, this idea of kind of state adoption list, right? So you have to right. be on this adoption list for a lot of curriculums or content to be adopted. And again, we're seeing where, you know, those types of policies are being changed where now it's easier for um, states and, and districts to adopt different learning content that's necessarily not on the last year's adoption list. That, that's one yeah. example. Um, you have a you have a handful of blended learning apps on here. So I'm thinking of there's been a couple of great blended learning um, grant programs in Texas. Raise Your Hand was one of them. Mm -hmm. The state has another blended learning program, and that has created openings for people like Better Lesson and Elevation uh, and Desmos and uh, Newzilla. So they're they're structuring a a set of grants that change practices that create openings for for companies and it's this combination of the investments that you're making and philanthropic grant programs that often move the sector forward in a, in a productive way. Yeah, I'd also say, you know, we still see a lot of infrastructure challenges. And again, this is another area where I think philanthropy um, yeah. can, can support here randomly and, and the public sector. But, you know, even during this, this pandemic, we've seen such huge inequities just being amplified, right? A lot of students who uh, don't still don't have access to a device, don't have access to internet to really even participate in, in remote learning. And so that's another area where, you know, these partnerships could, again, provide infrastructure uh, to enable these innovations to really reach all yep. learners. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, and we're recording this on the 23rd, it, a couple of days ago, the NSBA led a big national push um, around the need for broadband for all. So another good example of yeah. advocating for infrastructure investment that's really going to help move the sector forward uh, in a coordinated way. Yeah. Uh, Chantel, thanks for joining us today. It's, uh, we, we love the work that you guys are doing at REACH. You do it uh, thoughtfully, intentionally, um, the, the people in your portfolio really appreciate you and, uh, and the work you do and, and how you do it. And we appreciate the impact that, that you and Jen and, um, and, and your colleagues are making. So thank you for thank you. your work you. and thanks for joining us. A big thanks to Chantel for joining us on this week's episode. For more information on EdTech and skills for tomorrow's world, check out episode 274 with Rochelle Denepoth. The link is in the blog and in the show notes. And for all things innovations and learning, be sure to check out our blog at gettingsmart.com and hit subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.